0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk to Dr. Christopher Devine about a book he's written that pretty helpfully answers a question that to be honest, I have kind of always wondered. Um, What is up with American presidential campaigns? Why do they seem to go to so many places? What is the impact of these visits? Do they always have an impact? If so, what is it? When do they? When don't they? There are so many questions of this incredibly visible activity. And I'm very pleased that we get to discuss the book titled I'm Here to Ask for Your Vote, How Presidential Campaign Visits Influence Voters, published by Columbia University Press, that asks and answers all of these questions and many more. So Christopher, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Miranda. Miranda, it's really a delight to be here.
2: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Yeah, I'd be glad to. So my name is Christopher Devine. I teach at the University of Dayton in Ohio. And uh, my research focuses on American politics, especially political campaigns, presidential campaigns in particular. And uh, I guess probably the way to introduce uh, my research generally in, in this particular project is I'm always intrigued by interrogating the conventional wisdom about politics, campaigns in particular. Um Around campaign time, as we're experiencing this year in 2024, you just hear a lot of things thrown around about what's going to shake up the race, what's going to determine the outcome, how the candidates could get an edge. And, um, you know, I think sometimes those things are true. They're often not as powerful as, as it's it's played up to be. Um, but there are some times where there's just not much to it. There's sometimes where we really exaggerate these things. It feels like it matters a lot, but it might not actually. And so... Um, My other line of research kind of leading up uh, towards this that uh, opened the way to focusing on campaign visits was on vice presidential candidates. So um, I've written some books and articles, um, uh, most with uh, Kyle Kopko, my frequent co-author. And uh, we looked at, you know do, as we put it in in our 2020 book in the title, do running mates matter? Do they actually influence the outcome of an election? Because again, as we're hearing right now, there's so much hype about that, that this could change the outcome. That's all going to hinge on this. And, um, you know, we often end up with these answers that, yeah, these things matter, but not nearly as much as as people think. And um, that's kind of how I came at this project here. And it's funny because it kind of grew out of that line of, of research about 10 years or so ago, Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of provide some evidence for a point about how running mates were used to appeal to their home state. And so, uh, you know, I want to show, for example, that uh, Paul Ryan, once he was selected was the person out of the Romney Ryan ticket who was sent to Wisconsin to, persuade voters there to support the ticket. Um, Want to show that through campaign visits as kind of an indicator of campaign strategy. Like how are they allocating their resources? You got the presidential candidates time, the vice presidential candidates time. Are they using that to appeal to voters in Wisconsin? Went to find some data on that. I'll just look up where, you know, campaign visits, where they went, kind of find the official record out there, the political science database of it, and just assumed it was out there and it wasn't. And um, that seemed to me like a big omission in the scholarship on, on campaigns, that there was no kind of centralized resource. And so I built my own o- over time, something that uh, we'll talk about that, um, I call the campaign visits database, at least for the last four presidential elections, which I plan to extend, uh, looking at where do the candidates travel, the presidential and vice presidential candidates. And I started using that some early iterations to investigate things like, Hey, uh, Is it true, as people say, that Hillary Clinton lost the election because she didn't visit Wisconsin or even that she lost Wisconsin itself because of that? Uh, So I've written some articles uh, on on that before and and, and now this book to tackle that conventional wisdom. And as I say, sometimes it's true, but often it's not. Um, Where's the evidence? That's how I'm looking at things.
2: Well, we like evidence and we like questioning things. So we're very pleased to have you. Um, And that was a great introduction to a number of things I want to ask you about. Um, But I suppose starting at the beginning of the book, given kind of, as you've just described, the sort of prevalence of this problem, we've got a gap kind of with any of the presidential cycles. Um, And this question of presidential visits is not new. Uh, This is something that's been around for a while. Why do you start the book by discussing Biden's 2020 campaign?
1: Yes. Yeah, so this is the introduction of the book. And I, I talk about this narrative about Joe Biden's campaign, that he was locked in his basement. That was something Donald Trump and his supporters often said, even some allies of, of Joe Biden at points in the campaign um, disparaged him in some ways by saying that he's got to get out of his basement. So why do I start here? Um a broad point and a specific point. So the, the broad point is this, uh, when we think about political campaigns, we may not realize it, but often what we're picturing or thinking about is their activity on the campaign trail. In other words, what I'm saying is we may not realize it. Let's pause and think about it. That in fact, campaign visits where the candidates are traveling and how often they're traveling and all that, um, they're really, I would say, the defining feature of presidential campaigns. That's not to say they're most important. Um, there are other things like fundraising that matter, and of course, advertisements and um, now you know, social media presence and all kinds of, of things. And those are important. But what we picture most of all is the candidates traveling around, speaking at big rallies to you know, excited supporters and that kind of thing. And what intrigued me particularly about the Biden example is this: is as close we've co- as we've come in modern history to seeing a campaign, or at least this is a perception, a campaign without those visits. And so what intrigued me about uh, Biden in particular, here moving to the specific of this, what I call basement narrative about him, is how much that discussion of whether he was campaigning enough uh, played into the 2020 campaign. And what I read into it is it's an indication of how important campaign visits are, that when a candidate is at least perceived to be, and I show this is not the reality although there's some perhaps points to make here that th- there's a little something to it but uh, it's, it's very much exaggerated he was in the, in the basement um what it shows is that people use that as an indicator of legitimacy essentially that when it seems like a, a candidate is not campaigning as they're supposed to do and Of course, I should mention here, just to state the obvious, that in 2020, we had the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, that didn't stop Donald Trump from running a traditional campaign until he got COVID and was hospitalized and had to come off the campaign trail for 10 days. Uh, But for the Biden campaign, Biden and Harris, they did scale back their presidential campaigning. So the conversation that that bubbled up from from that was a lot of people more or less saying, and and I provide some evidence of this and kind of uh, provide my own interpretation, that I think what they were saying was, if you are not campaigning in the way that we expect. That is is, stop in-person campaigning. Virtual doesn't count. You know, They tried it, but for a lot of people, that just doesn't count. Um, if you don't campaign in that way, the traditional campaign as, as it's thought of, are you really running for president? Uh, are you deserving of the presidency if you're not willing to work your tail off in order to get it? Is that a sign that you're not up to the job or that you don't want the job enough to deserve it. Um, as I characterize it at one point, um, you know, Biden, in the eyes of many, was not running for president as one typically would, nor was he, as they called in, in the 19th century, standing for the presidency, just allowing people to put him up for it without him speaking. He seemed at times like he was sort of in between, like he was not running or standing, but jogging for the presidency, uh, not trying as hard as he might have. And so that insight uh, that I bring in, in there that I think leads into a lot of the rest of the book is that we so heavily associate campaign visits with campaigning itself. that when someone doesn't do it enough, it's questioned whether they're really campaigning, whether they really deserve the presidency. But it's also what's built into that is this assumption that you should do so because campaign visits work that by Hillary Clinton not visiting Wisconsin, she was basically forfeiting the state. Uh, Or Biden not campaigning enough, he was mailing it in on the the race. And so part of what I want to do with this book is to say, is that assumption even true? And if it's not, uh, or not as true as we think it to be, then should we reconsider the importance of campaign visits?
2: All right. Before, though, we reconsider it, Can I pick up on something that you mentioned in that answer? The idea of now it's running. It used to be standing. There's this Mm -hmm. traditional idea of what running looks like, but how far back does traditional actually go? What have presidential campaigns always been about running? What were they like if we go back to the late 18th or early 19th centuries?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's this distinction I, I refer to in the book. And it's not uh, originally mine. Uh, Gil Troy, the historian is is, is uh, where I picked this up. And I think some others have said it, is that what we think of as traditional campaigning, the way you're supposed to do it is actually pretty modern. Uh, there's not a single point where it took, uh, as uh, we'll discuss, uh, I trace it mostly as others do to essentially the Harry Truman whistle stop tour of 1948. But um, the traditional campaign, if we really want to go back to the earliest years, was for candidates to not be so presumptuous as to put themselves forward as the candidates to go and solicit votes that was seen as unseemly. Uh, It was immodest. So early on, if we go back to the earliest elections, um, sort of the late 1700s, but maybe we're talking the 1800s here, um, what candidates would do, especially in the first half of that century, was to allow their friends, as they often put it, to put them up for the presidency. And essentially their service to the nation in that capacity was to not object and not stop their friends from doing it. <laughs> now, this is at least the way that was played off. You look at some of the behind the scenes stuff, the letters they were writing to friends, and uh, often they were very involved. So uh, Thomas Jefferson was doing things to uh, campaign for himself. Uh, when he was running for the presidency, he just wouldn't use his name, wouldn't own up to it. So the stuff was going on, but you had to pretend that you weren't really running, because it seemed to suggest that you were desperate for power. And the idea was power couldn't be entrusted to people who are hungry for it. It should only go to people who did it as basically a public service, a duty to the nation.
2: Okay, yeah, that's pretty different from running. And as you said, working your tail off. Mm -hmm. So let's try and figure out when this changed. To what extent was it changing? Before we get to the 20th century, you talk about in the book around the election of Andrew Jackson. Do we see a lot of change here or fits and starts? What's happening at this point?
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing actually I'll I'll pause here and and note is, uh, you know, for any listeners who are saying, well, that's pretty historical. I thought this was going to be some quantitative work (laughs) and that that kind of stuff. Uh, One thing that I enjoyed about the book was doing a a little of all these things. Uh, So this is um, the first chapter book. There's the introduction then this first chapter uh, that is basically a history or, as I call it, a brief history of presidential campaign visits. And frankly, it's my favorite part of the book. It's fun to go through uh, this history and hopefully provide some context uh, as well. So uh, some of the things you're pointing to, I think, are, are very important. And, and thinking about, well, how did this change? Why did it change? What difference did, did this make? So if we put ourselves in context here in you know basically the first half of the 19th century, there are some changes going on in the nature of presidential campaigning. Early on, it's actually the state legislatures who are choosing electors in most cases. There's no you know, clean linear trend here. But basically, once we get to, to the point where Andrew Jackson is being elected in, in 1828, now we not only have Uh, In nearly every state, the people choosing the electors uh, rather than the state legislature choosing the electors, nearly every state. Also, we have this tremendous expansion of the electorate that we often associate with Jacksonian democracy. So we have this transition going on in, let's say, the first three decades of the 19th century. So that's what makes it possible for candidates to say, you know what, let's stop focusing so much on persuading elites to support this candidate. Let's focus instead on appealing to the people on mass appeal. And so we get this transition, particularly in the 1830s. um, There's some excellent work on on this that I cite uh, cite there that deals with this. So, you know, I'm picking up on something others have pointed out in this case. Um, But we saw this transition towards uh, more popular popular campaigning. And it wasn't until 1836 and 1840 that we actually saw a presidential candidate getting out there and campaigning. Now, there are some steps in that direction. So Andrew Jackson, for instance, when he's running in 1824 unsuccessfully for the presidency, he does something so bold as to write a letter that was, you know, allowed to be made public in which he stated his views on tariffs, uh, for example, and his Uh, stance on this was that uh, the American people deserve to know what the candidates stand for. That was kind of a revolutionary concept because before they were just staying detached and their supporters were speaking up for them, vouching for them. So he wrote a public letter. Martin Van Buren as sitting president running for reelection in 1840 does the same thing. And we see this transition where now it's allowed kind of mid 19th century. Now it's allowed for candidates to state substantively why they should be president. That's being accepted, but it's still not accepted for them to go out on the campaign trail, as we now call it, and or as they used to call it, stump for votes, you know, kind of like standing on the tree stump and speaking to a, a large crowd here in this era before microphones and such. Um mm-hmm. There is campaigning in 1836 by William Henry Harrison. He's the first candidate really to do so. Uh, Some people don't characterize that as as actual campaigning. When you look at the historical record, actually, there is clear evidence that he was campaigning. In 1840, he becomes the first candidate ever to go out on the campaign trail personally asking for votes and win the presidency. He says at one point, um, you know, I'm afraid that in doing so, I might be setting a precedent, you know, that others could following my footsteps and this will become the new trend as to campaign for the presidency. He kind of pretends that's not what he's doing. Uh, as it happens, it didn't really pick up. It takes many years for that to uh, become the norm. In fact, it's not really until the 20th century.
2: So why doesn't it pick up then? Why does it take until the 20th century for in-person campaigning to become embedded in what it means to campaign?
1: Yeah, good question. You know, I think there are multiple factors here. Um, I, I should mention too, even with the earlier uh, campaigning, why it didn't happen is it, just to travel from state to state or within states was more difficult. So over time, we're getting canals and railroads and other things that make it more feasible to actually do a, a larger scale campaign. And, and there are some fits and starts. There's some attempts to, to do so. Um, I go through a number of these in the book, but just to point to a couple, Stephen Douglas in 1860, as one of the Democratic candidates, the party split that year heading in to the Civil War, um, as one of the Democratic candidates, he traveled extensively by railroad. Horace Greeley, the Democratic candidate in 1872, does the same thing. Uh, James Blaine, the Republican candidate in 1884, and eventually we get William Jennings Bryan, who does a pretty massive campaign in 1896 and 1900. It takes a while for that to become the norm, and, and as I say, I think there are a few reasons for it. You know, technology initially was was one, uh, or, or, or ease of travel, but um, there's still this lingering concern about seeking the presidency. It's still seen as unseemly. Uh, opposition newspapers are only too eager to point to this when a candidate like Stephen Douglas does it as an example of, of, of uh, kind of bad character, bad form. Uh, so there's still a stigma to it. And campaigns, candidates are still saying, even up to, let's say, Grover Cleveland, 1884, um, I'll only run as a duty. I'm not seeking this. Um, I'll, I'll respond if that's what uh, people, people want. I should also point out that we have william henry harrison 1840 campaigning in person and winning after that the record is not so good for in person campaigners it tends to be the kind of thing that candidates do when they're on track to lose when they're desperate. Uh, so it was almost seen as a stunt. And there's other risks that go along to it when candidates put themselves out on the campaign trail. And, and you know, we'll see how this factors in, by the way, in 2024 with Joe Biden. It's hard to know exactly how that campaign's going to go, but there's this uh, talk at least that perhaps the campaign is holding back from some of these appearances because they're not sure if he'd hold up well in those settings. Well, that's one risk you take when you go on the campaign trail. You could stumble. You could make gaffes. It's not even always the candidate, uh, him or herself, that, that is making that gaffe. Uh, sometimes it's who they're associated with. There's a famous incident in 1884. If, if people know anything about this election, this is, this is the thing they know rum, Romanism and rebellion. This was a phrase that was used by a uh, a preacher um, who was on the same stage as James uh, Blaine when he was running for president that year. Um, He essentially was targeting in that case, uh, rum, uh, that would be, uh, you know, alcohol and and then uh, Romanism, Catholicism and rebellion, uh, you know, uh, Confederacy. So, he said the Democratic Party stood for all those things. Blaine not only didn't say anything at that time to refute it, but he didn't do anything quickly afterwards. It took him several days to say anything about it in an extremely close election. Uh, there's the perception, uh, maybe the reality, I'm not sure, that that is what cost him the election. So there's risk in going out on the campaign trail, too. You don't just get benefits. You could do some things that derail the campaign. And a lot of candidates do uh, For instance, Ulysses Grant uh, running for a second term in 1872 explicitly said this in in a private letter that, um, you know, everybody who's gone out to campaign for themselves has lost and I don't want to lose, so I'm not going to do it.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, that track record doesn't exactly seem encouraging at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously that changes, um, not just in terms of having some attempt at in-person campaigning, but actually as you demonstrate in the book, and I think probably listeners are aware of given sort of what you had us imagine right at the beginning of this conversation, it's not just that in-person campaigning becomes embedded we actually have a very consistent idea of what in-person campaigning is meant to be, what it's meant to look like, what it's meant to sound like. It's incredibly consistent. When, where, and why do we get that sort of embeddedness and specific script, I suppose, of presidential campaigning?
1: Yeah. So there's, um, there's a lot of history here. I'll, I'll try to do the, the, the outline of it. So, um, we have more of an acceptance of in-person campaigning as we get into the 20th century. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, as I mentioned, uh, campaigns extensively in 1896 and, and, and 1900, I should point out in 1896, some people may, may know uh, his opponent, William McKinley was campaigning too, but from his front porch, this is something that starts with, um, James Garfield in, in 1880, where basically people are coming to his home after he's nominated and want him to speak. And so he said, sure, I'll, I'll start speaking. It becomes a phenomenon. And it becomes this happy medium, uh, as one historian uh, referred to it, uh, that I, I quote in the book, uh, where candidates could campaign, but in this kind of modest way where people are coming to them and they're just being polite and responding. So there's, there's these transition points. Um, also, again, travel's becoming easier. And so as we get into the early 20th century, that front porch campaign starts fading away, it becomes more typical for candidates to actually go out on the campaign trail, though not ex- perhaps as extensively as we think of now, but but some do. Um, There's uh, examples where, for example, uh, there's examples like uh, Warren Harding in 1920, who famously ran a front porch campaign, but a lot of people don't realize this by the end was threatened by how much his opponents, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a vice presidential candidate for the Democratic ticket, how much they were campaigning. And so he actually does go out on the campaign trail. So there's a sense that front porch campaigning is not enough. We get in, um, in 1908. Uh, The second instance with William Howard Taft, who also intended to do a front porch campaign and gave up on that idea, uh, where William Howard Taft campaigned in person and won the presidency. Only the second time that happened. So it's not just for losers anymore. 1916, uh, Woodrow Wilson is president, the incumbent president. He also intends to do a front porch campaign, ends up giving up on that idea and is traveling to a few states. So now it becomes something that incumbent presidents do. So there's all these steps in that process. The really key point is in 1948, when Harry Truman does his famous whistle-stop tour of the United States, goes coast to coast. Thousands upon thousands of, of, of miles, and what really is different about that? Because he's not the first person to do a whistle stop tour, uh, although it's called that for the first time that year. Um, he is not the first one to do an extensive extensive travel of that kind. What's really different about Harry Truman and what makes this now the norm, where candidates basically can't opt out of it, is that Truman was supposed to lose. Uh, we may, you know, listeners may know the famous uh, stories there that pollsters in October just stopped conducting surveys because it's so obvious that Truman was going to lose to Thomas Dewey, and that didn't. Happen, And so people looked for, well, what could have been the cause? What what could have shaken up this race, shaken up expectations, where through the campaign itself, Truman was able to win? And and this is validated uh, by some historical research and and political science research as well, that it seems to be because of his campaign. It seems to be because he was traveling across the country, speaking to people, not just in the big cities, by the way, and he attracted huge crowds there. He'd often leave the uh, the, uh, the train, and he'd go to speak at some big arena or something like that. But what I think is also important about it is that by traveling by railroad, he was stopping in so many places that weren't big cities. And they weren't just targeted towards a specific type of voter. But anybody who might be interested in the campaign could stop and surround the car that some of them would wait for days for this opportunity. And they could listen to what the candidate had to say. It showed off some of his strengths. He was a good public speaker. Um, He embraced his informality of speaking off the cuff. As he put it, he uh, would study up on the place that he was about to visit and be able to speak to local issues. So what comes out of this is the lesson that, you know what, campaigning in person is not just for losers. We've established that. In fact, it could be the difference in winning the race. So this goes back to what I was saying about Joe Biden, some of the basement narrative about him is the the perception developed. It really uh, took hold there. And it's with us still that to not campaign is to cede an opportunity to make yourself the president. And anybody who wouldn't take that opportunity, <clears throat> who would forgo it altogether or would who would only do it halfway, must not really want the job. If you're not doing everything you can uh, to make yourself the president, then do you even deserve it? That was, I think, the takeaway from the Truman campaign.
2: Mm. And do you think that explains kind of why presidential campaigns are so consistent from that point forward?
1: I think it does. Yes. Um, that becomes part of political lore. Uh, it becomes maybe not the only thing you can do to win a uh, reference earlier, vice presidential picks and things like that. We have the debates, all kinds of opportunities that come up, advertising, of course, uh, on TV and now internet, uh, other things you can do to influence the race. But in many ways, this is the most visible day-to-day activity that a candidate specifically, him or herself, can do in person uh, to try to change the outcome of the race. There's also this strategy involved to it uh, that you can visit any state, you know, go anywhere. Of course, you only have 24 hours in the day, but you can travel anywhere to do it. And this ties into your question. I, I think we see this approach to campaigning, this, you know, sprint towards election day become the norm, especially in the 50s and 60s. In part because of air travel. Now, in the days of traveling by railroad, the whistle stop tours, uh, you could travel widely, but it's going to take some time, and you can't as easily pick where you're going to go or fit in, for that matter, multiple states in, in the same day, or at least that could be difficult to do. Now, once candidates are able to travel by air, uh, you know it's like pick your state, uh, it which state you want to go to, which part of that state. Of course, it's worth mentioning that with air travel um, that's going to uh, steer candidates more towards larger, uh, more populous areas where there are going to be big airports that can handle their big private jets in most cases. So that, that's another issue that comes into play. We actually get the uh, the the more rural areas that used to get some whistle stop uh, visits. Now they don't because they're not close to a major airport. Uh, that's probably one thing that also becomes the, the norm over time. But um, this, Type of campaigning where not only do you travel extensively, but the campaigns are free to choose where they're going to go. They, they can essentially evaluate the battleground as they see it and say, this is the state, this is the part of state we, we want to reach. They're very free to do that. Um, It's become a way of enacting strategy. And um, that's why a lot of people look to campaign visits as some sense of like, how well is the campaign being run? Hey, Hillary Clinton, why didn't you go to Wisconsin? You could have just hopped on a plane and gone there. Uh, So there's this assumption that candidates are free to go wherever they want. And so we can use the extent of their travel and and the locations of their travel to judge uh, how well they're pursuing the presidency and uh, how good their strategy is.
2: Well, we can use that information to judge it if we, you know, actually get that information and collate Mm -hmm. it and make it useful to look at for the sort of purpose you mentioned right at the beginning. Oh, I'm going to look up this in a database and that will help me, you know, make a judgment. So as you already told us, that database did not exist and therefore you've created it. So. (laughs) Can you tell us about the Campaign Visits database, Um, kind of a little bit, I suppose, about what's in it? But I'd also love to hear about kind of some of the challenges you had in creating it and how you dealt with what is almost always tricky data.
1: Yeah, this was the... Database that I wish I had available when I first started researching it. I want it to be that, that for other researchers. So if you go to my personal website, ChristopherJDivine.com, uh, you can find it there under data. Um, it's just freely available for anyone who wants to use it. Something I plan to build on in the future, uh, add to it in future uh, elections. It, it's made to work that way and be a resource for everyone who wants to study campaign visits. I think that should be easier than I found it to be when I first looked. So um, this database, uh, I I should probably mention a couple reasons why it's also important to have this. It's not that you would be unable to find resources out there on where candidates have traveled in the past. Usually it's for one election at a time. A lot of these resources don't clearly identify what is a campaign visit. Uh, They don't, apply clear rules for it. Uh, there are all kinds of other messy issues uh, that they get into or they don't provide documentation to establish, all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to cover all these bases. So short version here. Um, I put together this database of presidential and vice presidential campaign visits from 2008 to 2020, which again, I plan to extend in the future. And uh, for uh, both those candidates, presidential, vice presidential candidates, I use as my start date September 1st and go through election day leaves me in the end with 1,440 visits for those four elections. So I can do things like count up, hey, how many campaign visits did the candidates make? And when did they uh, make those visits across the schedule of the campaign, across the calendar? Um, And then we can also look into things like where they traveled. And even, uh, for example, I go further and and, uh, discuss the venues that they visited, like, hey, are these all big rallies at arenas. How many of these are visits to a local restaurant or a local business? How many of them are at airports like Donald Trump and Mike Pence did in 2020, 62% of the time? Um, Although candidates have not done that much in in previous um, campaigns. So there's all kinds of ways we can use this data to get a better uh, understanding of what campaign visits actually look like, not just the perception, uh, but the reality. And, um, In introducing this, I I should point out, too, when I say that uh, most resources don't provide a clear definition of what a campaign visit uh, would be. Um, I'll I'll just say this briefly. I'll I'll try not to get too bogged down in it. But um, for listeners who are curious, for me, campaign visits are any public in-person appearance, virtual doesn't count, apparently organized or initiated by the candidates for their campaign for the purpose of appealing to a localized concentration of voters. That localized bit is important because it tells us about strategy. When a candidate uh, appears at a debate, they're not picking that venue. Often both campaigns have had some input on where that's going to take place. We could say the same about conventions, but I want to know when given the choice of anywhere in the country, where do they choose to go? Fundraisers don't count because the point of that is uh, is to collect money, not to win votes. So there's all kinds of rules that come into play and, Uh, another you know favorite of mine in 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 the book i said that the historical chapter chapter one is probably my favorite i really enjoy chapter three as well explaining why i collected this data but also how i collected it and uh, as i I think you're pointing to here uh, there are some cases i think are kind of fun of um you know hey does this count as a visit or how would we know where it took place as i put at one point in the book i had to play detective at some points to figure out hey where did this visit take place? Um, Consider that uh, my analysis is at the county level. So I look at some of where they go by states, but when it gets to figuring out, hey, did these campaign visits make a difference or what was the strategy? uh, I look at, local characteristics to get that. It's not just enough to go to a state, but which part of the state uh, do you go to? What does that say about who you're trying to appeal to? Now, once I narrow that down to say, I'm going to figure out which county they went to, that became kind of tricky uh, because you need to know exa- exactly where the campaign visit took place. Um, and it's the case that as, as some of our listeners may know, uh, some cities or towns uh, are parts of multiple Counties, uh, they, they, uh, you know, there's a border between counties that runs between them, and sometimes it's even on the same street. So I had to be very specific in finding out where exactly these visits. Took place, and uh, there's a couple uh, accounts of that I, I, I give in the book that I think are interesting. Like, uh, for example, when Joe Biden went to a cookout. Um, this is uh, ice cream. I've never been there, but I think our North North Carolina listeners might know. I understand it's very popular there. Uh, he he went to get ice cream at a cookout restaurant in. Uh, uh, Durham, North, North Carolina. And um, I found that visit, but I couldn't find where it was located. Nobody would say in the, in the news accounts. And so what I had to do is I used the video of it to uh, see the visual of, of that cookout restaurant. And I could see, for example, uh, a Subway restaurant in the reflection on, on one of the windows. And so I was able to use Google Street View to look at the cookouts in Durham, North Carolina, figure out exactly which one that took place at in order to be sure that I knew the exact location, the address, and the county. Uh, there's one other story, and this is uh, my favorite, is uh, that Sarah Palin, in 2008, she went trick-or-treating with her daughter. Her husband, Todd, and and her went uh, trick-or-treating with their daughter, Piper, uh, not at their home in Alaska, uh, but while they were campaigning on October 31st in Dauphin, Pennsylvania. And um, there were news accounts of this. Uh, It it does fit my definition of campaign visit. It's kind of a quirky case, but but it does. She was interacting with local voters, basically, in ways that could help her win votes. And so I needed to know where exactly did this take place? Of course, she's going to multiple doors, but uh, could I at least find one specific uh, location for it? And uh, she... I, I found in, in one account uh, some, the, the, a quote from a homeowner whose home uh, the Palins had come to and had given Piper Palin some candy. <laughs> and need to know where that took place. Didn't say in the article, didn't say what street or anything like that. So I was able to... Uh, look up the person's name through public records data and find a location and then say, is there any evidence this is where it took place? I found a New York times story that showed the uh, house, of uh, that person, actually, and was able to use Google Street View to confirm exactly where it, it took place, uh, all the way down to the number on the home. And so that was some of the sleuthing I had to do to figure out exactly where these uh, campaign visits took place. Most of them were more straightforward, but some were complex. And uh, again, for anybody interested in researching these things, you know, I've, I've done some of that messy stuff for you, so go, uh, go make use of it.
2: <laughs> See, listeners, this is why I asked the question, right? These are fascinating stories for anyone who's ever tried to make a spreadsheet of data. Um, Also some kind of horrifying ones like goodness, there may be some freaked out grad students listening. On the other hand, I can reassure you, Christopher's already done it, right? So we all get to use his data now. So thank you for that great introduction to the data set. Um, I'd now like to ask you about kind of what we can figure out by using it. So I suppose the kind of crucial question is, where do presidential candidates go and when, what is impacting that decision making? And is any of that decision making about whether the candidate is incumbent, or whether they're Democrat or Republican, or are those not the factors at all that are determining where and when they go on these visits?
1: Yeah. Um, my two main goals with this book are to figure out not just whether campaign visits work as I was alluding to earlier, but, uh, as you're referring to here, um, what's the strategy behind it? What's determined? They're not just randomly, you know, they're not, they're not throwing darts at a map and figure out where, where to go just because they can by hopping on their airplane. They're very strategic about it. And there's a long history in the, um, political science literature when discussing campaign visits of talking about the candidates, um, Equivalence of time and money, uh, if we think of those as the most precious resources uh, in terms of getting things done in life, uh, time and money can be it. Now, money is usually going, well, towards a variety of things, including uh, campaign travel, but that's often associated with campaign ads. That's one important way that campaigns use their resources, try to appeal to people. But the candidate's time is best captured by where they're going and who they're speaking to. And so that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, there is this other element of campaign strategy, the ads that are important to factor into this and, and other uh, analyses do that. And it, it plays some role in mine, but I'm looking at how do they spend their time? And that's an interesting resource because they only have 24 hours a day. They can only go so many places. Even if the private jet can can take them there, they're still limited by that, Not to mention other duties, especially if they are an incumbent. And in fact, that is one thing I find that incumbent presidents tend to travel and vice presidents tend to travel less because they're busy, busy with other things. Uh, there are other factors, of course, that play into it. There's individual differences. We see, for instance, that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, did not travel much in 2016 until the end of the race. Uh, for the first 50 days of the campaign, she averaged only a half visit, half a visit per day, basically one visit every two days. Uh, Joe Biden was uh did have uh, fewer visits than a lot of other candidates, uh, but he actually had more campaign visits in 2020 than Mike Pence or Kamala Harris, uh, and he was only nine behind Donald Trump. So there's a lot of variation by candidates. Some of that plays into who they are and perhaps how much they enjoy the campaign trail or their strategy. Uh, but what I'm especially focusing on is what what we can infer about strategy. From how they're using this resource where they're going not just how often they're traveling but where they're choosing to go you could imagine i think our listeners can think think of their uh, states if they're in the us and, and they could uh think that if a candidate goes to this part of the state they're probably trying to reach this type of voter that part of state that type of voter it might make a difference whether for instance going to florida candidates go to the panhandle versus let's say the miami area south florida right so this is uh The county they go to, the local part of a state they go to can tell us a lot about what the strategy is. And so the main thing I'm trying to find out is whether candidates are using their their campaign visits and perhaps other resources to try to mobilize or persuade voters. That becomes a very important part of my story, not just whether campaign visits make a difference, but what are they intended to do and do they achieve that strategy? So just to be clear, when we're talking about mobilization, We're talking basically about getting out the base of the party. Uh, We can't assume that everyone that agrees with the candidate is actually going to go out and vote. So what candidates are often trying to do is try and ensure that people who generally agree with them or at least prefer them over the alternative actually get out to vote. That's mobilization. Persuasion has more to do with people who are going to vote. They basically know they're going to. They intend to. Maybe they're currently undecided. Maybe they're thinking of a third party candidate. But these are basically existing voters And the campaigns are trying to persuade them to choose, uh, you know, their, their candidate. Uh, So in short, how I try to determine that is, uh, you know, whether campaigns are trying to mobilize or persuade with campaign visits to look at where they go and say, let's say it's a, a Democratic candidate. Are they basically going to Democratic turf? Are they going to not just states, but counties? course, they're going to battleground states, ones that are competitive. But within those states, are they going to areas that are favorable to Democrats? If that's the case, based on past voting patterns or demographics, uh, considering the constituencies of the two parties, if they're going to friendly territory, I assume that the goal is to mobilize partisan supporters. If they're going to unfriendly territory, or maybe just swing areas, ones that are more competitive between the two parties. And my assumption is that the candidates are trying to persuade in that case. Now, uh, the trend in recent years for about 20 or so years has been that candidates are trying to mobilize more. That's not always the case, though. And I find some evidence that in certain cases, um, candidates are actually trying to persuade voters. And as we'll talk about, I actually find that to be a more promising strategy.
2: So yeah, no, let, let's let talk about that. Do, mm-hmm. Does this work? Do campaign visits impact voting behavior at all?
1: That's the big question. So, uh, and that's the main thing I'm, I'm trying to answer. Uh, and I, I just go back for a second to, to that discussion about how define how much these are defining features of the campaign. Um, it's important to know whether they work, but also whether they, they work at executing the intended strategy of the campaigns. And so the big Answer to the question, uh, just oversimplifying it a bit, of course, much more detail in the book, by and large, campaign visits do not change votes. If we look at the patterns about the counties at, that candidates are going to, and then how those counties vote and how we would have expected them to vote based on other controls that are in my statistical models, uh, things about past voting, things about demographics, things about how the campaigns are advertising in that area, all that kind of stuff whether a candidate visited and how many times that candidate visit visited um, in most cases i cannot say with any real degree of confidence that it made a difference there are some cases where campaign visits uh, are associated with a gain in the vote now overall that rarely happens really the only clear instances i find were in 2008 that it seemed like uh barack obama and actually to a greater extent more clearly uh john mccain They seem to actually change votes with their campaign visits. But in recent years, and I'm talking including remember when Hillary Clinton, if she had just visited Wisconsin, she would have won votes. Well, overall I find that her campaign visits were not associated with winning votes. And that's not just a Hillary Clinton problem. Donald Trump, whose rallies are are supposed to be one of the key explanations for how he pulled off his surprise win in twenty sixteen, how he was so competitive in twenty twenty, why he might be competitive here again in twenty twenty-four. A lot of people trace that to his rallies, which seem to have this big impact. Not really Finding that uh, now, when you break down the data a little more, try to figure out, hey, when this happens, uh, you know, when what makes them uh, effective. I was surprised by the answer. I expected that when they worked, and I didn't think they'd matter very often. Some of that's based on my previous research and previous research of others. I, I thought for the most part, uh, these campaign visits are really not going to make a difference. But I thought when they did happen, it would be by mobilizing those supporters to get out and vote. That's not what I find. When these uh, effects occur, when campaign visits are associated with a gain in votes, almost always it seems to be by persuading voters. And I get it that a couple, this a couple different ways. Um, one, when someone like McCain or Obama, their campaign visits seem to be associated with a gain in votes. I also test were their visits associated with a gain in turnout? That would be an indication of mobilization. In other words, their gain in votes coincides with uh, bringing more voters into the electorate. That would be an example of mobilization. Instead, what I find is when there are these gains, in almost every case, there's no corresponding change in turnout. In other words, what I assume is that the candidates are gaining vote share without bringing in new voters. They're basically persuading the people who are already in the pool of voters. And there's a lot of detail on this in in the book, just a a quick indication of, well, you know, Hey, how do I, how do I really know this? Is that all there is? Well, there's a couple of ways of approaching the data here. Uh, We could use aggregate data. So how did the County vote and then how many visits uh, did the candidate have there? You could judge it based on that. There's a variety of problems in terms of, uh, causal inference with that. Um, how do we know that, okay, if there's this gain in vote share but not a change in turnout, do we assume that's by persuasion or, hey, maybe it's the case, for example, let's say, um, you know, uh, Barack Obama, uh, he gains the, these votes in 2008 with, the, with his campaign visits. Uh, maybe he brought out Democrats with those visits and then there were some independents who decided to stay. Home. So maybe he actually is mobilizing voters. So, one thing I, I did to get a better sense of things and provide some uh, kind of checkpoint for, for the data was to also use survey data uh, from 2008 to 2020. And there's a wonderful resource out there, the uh, Cooperative Election Studies, used to be a cooperative congressional election study, uh, where they have these massive samples of, of you know, recent years 60,000 people. They have People uh, survey respondents from nearly every county in the United States and certainly nearly every county that gets a campaign visit. And so there I classify respondents uh, according to whether they live in a county that got a campaign visit or or really how many campaign visits and then see how they voted. And one thing that allows me to do is break down voters by um, their party affiliation. So not just whether they're Democrats or Republicans, but um, uh, whether they're uh, Republican but uh, or independents leaning towards Republicans, independents leaning towards Democrats. I, I basically have five opportunities or five possibilities here. Democrats, Democratic leaners, independents, Republican leaners, Republicans. And so what I can show there is that when, again, the, these visits occurred, I can break it down by those groups. Um, it tended to be that in nearly every case. When a group of voters based on their partisanship was influenced, it tended to be people in the middle, not strong Republicans or strong Democrats, but often independents. Uh, just give one specific example here, again, referring back to Barack Obama in 2008, I found when you break down counties by partisanship or you break down survey respondents by partisanship, uh, Obama, uh, his visits were associated with a, a gain in votes, but not turnout, among independents uh, at the survey respondent level, or within counties among swing counties, the ones that were in the previous election uh, between 45 and 55% uh, Democratic in in their two-party vote share. So no matter how you look at this, in the rare case, the exceptional cases where campaign visits seem to make a difference, it's almost always by having an impact in more competitive counties, or if we look at this at the individual level, among people who are not as tied to parties. That's the opposite of what we would expect if it were the case that these campaign visits are just mobilizing the party base.
2: Hmm. All right. So that's obviously really helpful findings, really interesting findings. But what do we do with them? What should people, for example, working on campaigns, as you said, I mean we've got a campaign this year. what are the implications of this for people who work on campaigns? What are the implications of this for people who study campaigns?
1: Yeah, and that is how I hope people look at this research is okay what do, we, what do we do with this now? You could look at that from a campaign perspective or you could look at it from a scholarly perspective, hopefully both. And I go through in the conclusion some messages that I would have for uh, both of those those groups. And from the campaign side, uh, I think the wrong lesson to learn, uh, an overlearning of a lesson here, would be to say, oh, okay, so campaign visits don't really matter. Why spend all this time and, and some money on doing that? Why not just stay home and at least not do these events? Maybe we'll just fundraise instead, or maybe just do them virtually. Uh I would caution against that. That would be an overinterpretation. I think one thing to factor in here is that often campaigns are going to the same states in the same parts of states. Uh, so, as uh, readers you know, or listeners, surely would would recognize here, uh, the campaigns are not going to every state, and that, in fact, that's one thing I, I go through uh, with some evidence in, in Chapter Three when I introduce the campaign visits. Uh, or I'm sorry, Chapter Four. When talking about where they go, is that campaigns are mostly focusing on battleground states, at least perceived battleground states. So, for example, the correlation in campaign visits by by party is about 0.9 at the state level. So they're pretty much going to the same states, and even within those states. If we go by county, it's uh, 0.6 is the correlation. So, you know, not always going to the same place, but mostly. So there's some canceling out here uh, of the effects, although I do control my statistical models for uh, other visits to a county by the opposing campaign. Um, I would say that campaigns still should do this uh, activity in part to not just cede that ground to an opponent. Uh, it would be uh, different if we could see that Um, You know, if one campaign essentially, um, you know, let go of the rope in this tug of war in campaigns and let the other candidate do all the traveling, we might see more of an effect. So I would caution campaigns against uh, stopping campaign visits altogether. Also, I think it would feed into what I was referring to before, uh, a negative perception about the candidate that he or she is not sufficiently committed to winning the presidency. When they do campaign, though, and this is one place I I would suggest a change, is that campaigns have moved much more towards focusing on mobilization. My evidence would suggest that's not as successful as they think, that there's actually a real opportunity in persuading voters. This is one place where I think there's a hopeful message in my research. I think a lot of people are frustrated by campaigns that seem increasingly driven towards just preaching to the choir, getting out the base, uh not trying to convert anyone, just speaking to those who are already on on one side. My evidence suggests that actually there's some value in reaching out to people who are sort of in the middle, people who are open to either candidate or maybe just not thrilled with either candidate. And uh, those people could actually be persuaded. There's not as many of those people, to be clear, I'm I'm definitely a believer in terms of the the data here that there are many more partisans than there are true independents. True independents are probably about 10% of the population when you you really dig into the data. But in a close race, like We may have in 2024, like we had in 2020, like we had in 2016, that could be decisive. So I think there's some value in campaigns still focusing on them. Uh, One other message is to use the vice presidential candidates. There are some instances where I find that the VP candidate made a difference, uh, seemed to be effective with their campaign visits. Again, that might depend on the, um, uh, the candidate, him or herself. They could also be used for different strategies. They could be used to appeal to different voters. I find, for example, that in 2008, John McCain was mostly trying to persuade. He was going to essentially Democratic territory, competitive territory to try to persuade voters there. But Sarah Palin was going more towards uh, to uh, more conservative, basically base counties uh, in that case. So there's some opportunity there to even use a complementary strategy play to either candidate's strength. So those are some messages I would have for presidential campaigns. Keep Doing these campaign visits, but focus more on persuasion and use both the candidates to achieve uh, what you're what you're looking for. Executing that strategy, in terms of people studying this, there are a variety of recommendations I, I give. I'll just point to what I think is the most interesting one. Um, my dream for this book, this is this might have been my favorite chapter if if, uh, if things had worked out this way, is I wanted to do a qualitative study of campaign visits. This is a mostly quantitative work, although you know there's the hist- historical chapter and so on, in um, some descriptive statistics, but. In terms of qualitative research uh, my goal and then COVID happened right we all know that kind of story uh, my goal was in 2020 to actually go to campaign rallies or other events i assumed there would be some in ohio there were some although not as many as in the past um go to those and actually talk to people who are attending my assumption was that most most of the people who go there already have their minds made up they're just going to cheer on their candidate but hey, I want to know if that's true. I could actually go and talk to them and ask them, why are you here? What's the value of this for you? Do you think it could change the way that you're going to vote in this race? Or I think more likely, is this going to get you to go volunteer for the campaign or donate money to the campaign? Maybe these some of these secondary uh, effects. Um, I would also want to talk to people in the community who chose not to go for whatever reason. Uh, ask them not just why they didn't go, but also uh, what have they heard about that event that just took place? Does that affect them? And maybe check in with these folks if I could uh, a few weeks later or a month later or so and see what were the lasting effects of it. I think that would be a really valuable contribution and I would encourage others to take this up. As I said, 2020 was just not the right year for that. Uh, we had very uh, small settings for, for uh, the Biden campaign. Uh events, uh, bigger settings for the Trump campaign, but then other things in terms of public health that made that uh, not as appealing. So uh, that's something I think people could do in the future and hopefully a a safer environment for uh, conducting such an analysis.
2: I think that's really interesting um, as kind of potential things. Uh, And who knows, you know, someone might be listening to this going, oh, I've I've done that or I'm thinking of doing that. Um, Who knows? We shall see. One thing it doesn't sound like the future is going to have either for research or for, for campaigns is replacing in-person campaign visits, despite the fact that we have the technology to do all manner of things um, virtually that we didn't used to be able to. I suppose in terms of you've just kind of helped us think through what do we do with this in terms of working on campaigns? What do we do with this in terms of researching campaigns? But I suppose for an even bigger audience, what do we do thinking about what is a campaign? What is a campaign visit? Could you maybe sum it up on this technological level? Why we're still going to have in-person campaign visits?
1: Hmm. This speaks to the counterfactual that that guides my introduction to, to the book of thinking. What would a world look like without not just campaign visits, but these in-person campaign visits? There there have been over the years, just like we were promised flying cars by the year two thousand. You know, there there were um, promises that we were on the verge of a virtual campaign look at 2020 when that was the reality not by a strategic choice but but just as a response to the public health conditions where when the biden campaign was doing that in 2020 not not the whole way through uh, he started doing in person visits in june and then picked up uh, throughout the fall but early on uh, in the pandemic march april may when there were stay at home orders and such the biden campaign was Doing uh, a virtual campaign. They're doing virtual rallies. That's how I start the book with this kind of failure of a virtual rally that was, quote unquote, in Tampa, Florida, Um, but it was really from uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, home in, in Delaware. They tried all those things. They did the fundraisers uh, virtually. They did the, um, the the TV interviews virtually. The endorsements with with former rivals. They even at one point did a virtual rope line where they they uh, tried to simulate that part that that intimate experience that you could have at, at a, a campaign rally where you actually get to meet the few, the candidate and, and talk to him or her face to face for for a moment. Uh, they actually selected a few people. I think they had four or six or whatever it was minutes apiece, to talk with Joe Biden. And Joe Biden. Um, it, it, it just wasn't the same thing. Nobody felt like it was the same thing. It might have been the best they could do under the circumstances, but it was uh, instructive in telling us that a, a world without in-person campaign visits, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't feel the same. And and I think if campaigns were to just decide to do that, own it, say, look, we've looked at some research. We've perhaps over, overinterpreted a book that we read. Um, you know, it, it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of the candidates' time. We're just going to do online campaigning from now on. I think that would be a loss for American democracy. And, I, and I, I'd I frame it this way. So some of this is normative, but I, but I think it, it's empirical too, that there are some risks that the candidates uh, would take by by doing so. Uh, and again, pointing back to legitimacy as is, is one issue as well. Um, one thing that was neat about uh, writing this book and, and talking to people about it, talking about conferences for time, it seems like whenever I would bring it up to someone, they were all too eager to share their story of going to a presidential campaign rally or, 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 meeting the candidate on the campaign trail somehow. And I speak to in closing the book, my own experiences, uh, with that. I remember as a kid, Bill Clinton coming to my part of Western Massachusetts that candidates never bothered to visit because Massachusetts is such a predictably democratic state. It was a big deal that he had, he had come. It's something I remember to this day more than anything else about the 96 race. Um, when my first child was born in 2012, uh, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan had a rally scheduled 20 minutes from my home. And, and I was all too eager to take my kid to a, a rally and, and, and you know, be there to kind of witness history. Didn't matter who it was. I wanted to be there j- just so he could see that. Um, people remember those moments when a candidate comes to their town, their city, their state, comes to where they are to ask for their vote. And if we think about this in a, a broader uh, sense about American democracy, or certainly you could say this about other countries, if, if we were talking about visits there as well, um, there is something, I think, very appropriate, <laughs> uh, very uh, reassuring. And, and yes, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, uh, you know, campaign visit doesn't guarantee any actual kind of responsiveness. But in terms of getting people to buy into democracy, I do think it matters to have candidates actually come to them They're not going to go everywhere in the country. They're going to go to the battleground states. But, hey, if not to your community, then at least some other American on your behalf. For people, uh, for candidates to go to where they live, seek them out, stand in front of them, see them in person in the flesh and actually ask for their vote. That's why this book is called I'm Here to Ask for Your Vote. It's a line that's often used in in campaigns by candidates out there. At their rallies, um, but to me that says so much. Um, I think of it as almost the enactment of this idea of, of the consent of the governed. You know, we're not talking about setting up a constitution here, but as far as uh, that consent of the people, that someone will be their president, kind of bestowing that power on them. It's a ritual of our American democracy. And again, this could be true in other democracies um, where the candidates actually have to come and ask for it. Uh, and I think there would just be a tremendous symbolic loss in that if it no longer occurred, even if that's possible with technology, which it is these days, we've seen that it really doesn't work, that people react pretty negatively to that. And I think it's this, this loss of power or at least prestige. Um, it's a, a, a Uh, loss of propriety, we might say, that the candidates wouldn't bother to come and ask for our votes again, acknowledge that we are the ones that give that power to them. It's not power that they seize, but they actually have to ask for it. So uh, I think there's a lot of symbolism wrapped up in it, uh, that they're going out to campaign at all and speak to the people, but especially when it's your community and they've chosen you to come to and might even focus on local issues. um, It's something that makes people feel seen, feel part of the process, and perhaps feel that much more committed to it.
2: Well, I think there will probably be people listening who are going to experience campaign visits um, in the course of this year. So I think that symbolism will probably be very um, understood and felt uh, and with interesting implications for research as well. So thank you for kind of taking us through that last piece. But I do have one final question, if I may. Um, what are you working on next? Are you doing more things with the database? Are you moving on to something else? What are you doing now that this book is done?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I noticed that I've developed this tendency to to just pour myself into one specific thing related to a campaign and, and kind of ex- exhaust that in myself. Uh, I did the, with, with the vice presidential candidate research, uh, which I still do some of that, but mostly that book in 2020, to Running Mates Matter with Kyle Kopko. Um, that's kind of what I wanted to say about the, the role of vice presidential candidates. And I feel like with campaign visits here, I'm sure I'll do other things on the future, especially as I develop the data. But for the most part, at least at this point, I feel like I've, I've said what I wanted to say about campaign visits. Uh, so I'm embracing opportunity to turn to some other things, still presidential election oriented, um, working on an edited volume about uh, vice presidential candidates and running mates uh, with some other scholars to uh, bring together perspectives on, on that important topic uh, that I don't think really exists uh, to that degree in, in, in current literature. Uh, but actually, my main focus is on um, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about Chapter One, the historical um uh, chapter, uh, I I so thoroughly enjoyed that it got me thinking a lot more about um, uh, focusing on political history, and um, I'm a uh, uh, a big fan of some of the, the these books, especially a particular series that I'm, I'm I'm trying to write for here on on presidential elections, and so I am in the proposal stage, kind of waiting for official word here, but I think it'll be a go on um, writing a book about the 1924 presidential election, Calvin Coolidge. Uh, Wins this landslide victory, despite the fact that he's known as Silent Cal and doesn't even campaign for the office. Speaking of campaign visits, uh, of course, one factor here is that his uh, son, very tragically, very suddenly died at the beginning of the campaign, essentially. Uh, but I don't think that was the only factor. Uh, there was still a presidential campaign. Uh, he, despite all all of that, he wins this big landslide victory in 1924 over a, a pretty conservative Democrat in John W. Davis, but also a third party candidate in Robert La Follette, a progressive candidate who um, was in some ways uh, the main opponent in that race. It's got a lot of fascinating dynamics to it. And essentially the thing I want to interrogate there, speaking of conventional wisdom, that's always how I'm approaching these things, is some people, I think, write off Calvin Coolidge and, and say, well, you know he it, he doesn't get any any of the credit. He was just a beneficiary of a strong economy, basically economic determinism. Um, if the economy is doing well, roaring 20s, then you're going to get a landslide victory. And I think that's really a caricature of, of Coolidge and the circumstances of that race. I, he did play an important behind the scenes role. And so I want to show uh, the role of the economy in that election, but also some of the ways that uh, Coolidge and other Republicans set the stage for that, basically primed the electorate uh, mm-hmm. to think favorably about the economy and give Coolidge credit for it. So that's a project yeah. that I'll take me uh, probably a few years here. <laughs> it will be a while till the next book, I think.
2: Fair enough. But in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled, I'm Here to Ask for Your Vote, How Presidential Campaign Visits Influence Voters, published by Columbia University Press. Christopher, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Miranda, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation.